Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 260 of the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. The title of today's interview is Manifesting East and West, an interview with Dr. Deepti Agarwal. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. During the course of our work here at Tick Bootcamp, we were often asked to refer people to Lyme literate medical doctors. And we often recommend that folks work with case integrative. That practice was getting overwhelmed. They had to grow. And I have to tell you, they found a fantastic doctor to assist them with the work that they're doing over at Case Integrative. This young woman, Dr. Deepti Agarwal, is a brilliant young woman whose family came from India. She was trained as a traditional Western allopathic doctor, and she's now become an integrative doctor where she's merging her culture and the Eastern tools that she learned largely from observing her grandmother working with her grandfather and her traditional allopathic Western training to now learn how to treat people holistically. She talked to us about managing pain versus finding its root cause. She talked about inflammation. She talked about food as medicine, mindfulness as medicine, and movement as medicine. This is a really great interview. I think folks are really going to enjoy this. Without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce Case Integrative's newest hire, Dr. Deepti Agarwal. Hello, Dr. Agarwal, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. We're really excited to um, have you on the podcast for a lot of different reasons, uh, the most important of which is you have joined one of our favorite practices um, in, the, uh, in the medical community. So talk to us about where you're currently working. So I have joined Case Integrative Health, which is in Chicago, Illinois, and I'm coming in uh, with a unique background as an anesthesiologist and pain management physician. I left a more traditional model of work recently where I was in a hospital background uh, practicing as an OR anesthesiologist and as a pain management physician in the outpatient clinic. So let's talk about your background first. Uh, I want to go a little deeper into your background. Uh, before we get into the your education and your um, and your medical training prior to joining Case, so talk to us a little bit about where you grew up. Yeah, so I interestingly grew up in Fargo, North Dakota, um, and have since been to the East Coast for schooling, and now back to the Midwest in Chicago, Illinois, for about the last decade. So talk to us about what it was like to grow up in Fargo. I mean, we're all generally familiar with Fargo, North Dakota because of the famous movie, the movie. Uh, title uh, and I guess uh, I guess uh, series Fargo. So uh, talk to us about what it was like to grow up in Fargo. Yeah, that is the most common question I get. Um, so I always tell people that growing up there is similar to just growing up in a suburb of a big city. The difference growing up there is that it was three and a half hours away from a big city, which was Minneapolis. Um, I would venture to say that since I lived there, which was many years ago, things have evolved and changed. It's a big medical center. It is a big educational center with universities there. But other than that, really has a lot of the same qualities as being on a lot of the Long Island places. Probably not, the bagels are probably not as good, but um, other than that, it's not much different. So talk to us about your family setting. What was your family setting like? Um, and uh, what was your culture like growing up in your family culture growing up in North Dakota? Uh, well, so I grew up in an immigrant family in a predominantly uh, non-immigrant community. So 
I think we did a lot of assimilating, which was fine. I had two professional working parents, a younger sister. We grew up very uh, comfortably, I would say, in terms of just our environment was very safe, easy to get around in, um, never dealt with a lot of crime, so and not a lot of traffic. So in, in some ways, I always think that was a, a charmed um, way to live, but um, in other ways, you know, we didn't have like a subway growing up and we didn't have public transportation and we didn't have all the fun restaurants that other places may have. But having the benefit of immigrant parents, you know, my sister and I still got to travel a lot and do things that probably a lot of our peers didn't get to do. So it's my understanding that you also had uh, contact with your extended family, with your grandparents. So talk to us about um, what it was like to uh, specifically um, you know, grow up in an immigrant family where you had contact with your with your grandparents, and I, and I'm interested in, in learning more about uh, the observations you made about your grandmother and how she cared for your grandfather when he was uh, managing his diabetes. Yeah, so actually, my grandparents lived in India. Um, our parents were very diligent, though, about um, having us go back fairly frequently growing up, and. And so that's probably where I would say at a young age that I really did begin to understand that medicine was multifaceted. And I grew up with a mother who was a physician as well. Um, but when when we would spend a few weeks in India at a time, and this was over, you know, 20, 30 years of going there, um, my grandparents were fairly regimented. So, you know, my grand my grandfather was a type one diabetic from, you know, as long as I knew him since I was born. And he had a fairly regimented lifestyle, which is, I think, part of the success of him, you know, living until the age that he did. And that included him waking up early. He knew exactly how he was checking his blood sugar. He had a very um, sort of detail-oriented uh, practice of walking outside, you know, getting in touch with nature in the morning, then doing... Um, a set of yoga poses and then doing a set of um, breathing techniques. And that that coupled with my grandmother's um, interest in naturopathy, I think really led them both to a very successful and healthy life. So you had the experience of growing up in the West uh, in Fargo, North Dakota. <laughs> yeah. uh, you had uh, parents uh, and, and a mom specifically who was a doctor practicing in a Western culture. Mm -hmm. And you had regular contact with the East where you saw people who were living a different life with a different lifestyle and using different tools to maintain their health. And talk to us a little bit about your grandmother and her use of food and the preparation of food uh, and what role that played in uh, keeping your grandfather, who lived to a ripe old age of the mid-80s, um, despite having type 1 diabetes? Yeah, you know, my grandmother is a very special woman, and she just passed away recently, so it's hard for me to talk about her. I'm sorry. But um, she just, I what I really marvel about her is that she... Um, you know, grew up at a time where she was married off very young, you know, she got married probably 16, 17, started having children at 18. And, you know, at that time, it wasn't common for women to be 
educated, but she had this deep passion. I think she probably would have become um, an official naturopath if she could have, but she did tons of reading. And so every time I would go and I, I was always somehow inclined towards health and healthy when I was younger, although the way I look at health is so different than I did when I was growing up. But, you know, when I was there, she would do little things like, you know, in the morning, she would start her day, she would make like fresh lemon water and put some cayenne pepper in it. And she would tell me that that's good for my metabolism. And I would always just follow her around the house. And then she also had a, a morning breath breathing technique that she would do. And, you know, I was young at the time, but I still remember just sitting there and kind of wondering what she was doing. But it was every time we would have these snippets that we would spend with them and then we'd go back a year later and then you know that's you you were frozen in time with that memory so you would go back and you know you jump jump on that wagon again and uh as I grew up and was a teenager and you know started doing weird diets or whatever fad diets were going on she would always um try to re-educate me and some of those things never made sense but now looking back at it a lot of the things that she would teach me were really important and things that we're coming back to now with like even the use of like good butters in our food and good oils and not trying to skimp on some of the actually good fats right at that time I was trying to do like a very low fat diet so I still remember some of those things about her and one of my fondest memories was actually, I went and spent some time there in between uh, my high school summer, my senior year of high school that summer and um, my first year of college. And I, I have a sweet uh, spot for ice cream. And so I, uh, my, I went with my dad and my sister. So my mom wasn't with us that summer. And she had told me several times, do not eat any ice cream when you are there. So I went all these weeks without any ice cream. And I thought, wow, I've done really well. I didn't get sick this whole time. I'm here in the summer. Uh, so the last few days before we were leaving, I snuck out with my cousin and had ice cream. And I will tell you, I became deathly ill within 24 hours. Um, could not keep anything down, could not walk, like really high fevers to the point where we had to have a house doctor come because I just couldn't move out of bed and I had a flight within 36 hours. But it was really interesting because nothing was working. And I still remember that there's this plant and it's, we know it as holy basil here. It's the Tulsi plant that my grandmother had always had outside their house. And she, she was just trying to get me better so that I could get on my flight and go home and go off to college. And so I started drinking this tea that she was making fresh tea. And we had tried so many things. And it, I just, I still will always remember this. This was when I was 17. I started to feel better after I had that tea, like the first time I had it and nothing else literally stayed down. Um, and so ever since then, I think that really sparked my curiosity at nature's way of healing and the body's own innate healing system. And now that I'm back able to actually do that work with patients, it's really exciting to me. So let's talk about now you come back to, uh, to the US and uh, you're an Ivy League educated um, uh, doctor, your undergrad, uh, you, you, were, um, you were at the University of Pennsylvania. So talk to us about um, your experience at UPenn and, um, and what, was your, what was your major there and what were your goals when you were at UPenn? So you're really jogging my memory now. 
My major was, it was biological basis of behavior. It's always, it, it sounds fancier than it, it really is, but it's um, really combining um, biology and neuroscience. And then I also always had an interest in more of the health social sciences. And so I did a major, I believe it was called health and societies, but that was a combination of doing more anthropology and more of the philosophy behind medicine and uh, some more of the social sciences in the healthcare field. So then after you, um, after you complete your undergraduate studies at UPenn, you, um, you are lucky enough to make your way to Long Island uh, in close <laughs> proximity where Matt and I are and you go to uh, Stony Brook University School of Medicine. So talk to us about what inspired you to come to Long Island and study at one of our finest universities. Yeah, so that was sort of a chance occurrence. My um, dad was actually working out in New York at the time, and I got into Stony Brook, and it made sense. Um, I was already on the East Coast, and all my peers and really good friends that I'd made were staying on the East Coast, and I had a good friend from UPenn that was also going to med school there, and it just kind of all made sense. So there I ended up, and that was, you know, a definitely a very memorable part of my life and also has led me to a lot of beautiful friendships. So I, I look back at Stony Brook and Long Island with fondness. Well, we're happy to hear that. We're, we're, I'm glad you were treated well when you came to Long Island. We wouldn't want the gal from Fargo, North Dakota <laughs> to think badly of, uh, of the New Yorkers. So um, now talk to us about what it was like to study um, Western medicine, right? You were, you had a very, very different experience with your grandmother and India and 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 the Eastern approach to healing. And now you're here in the West and you're studying purely Western science. So talk to us about how that was different than what you were learning and observing from your grandmother, who was this smart person who was a self-trained naturopath, even if she wasn't uh, formally educated. To be honest, going to medical school at that time, I didn't even think twice about it, right? Like this was the curriculum, this is what we were learning and that made total sense to me. And I felt like my other interests and incl inclination and in more natural medicine and um, holistic medicine was kind of a separate field. At that time, I really separated things out. So there was a red line, strict red line between Western medicine and Eastern medicine and never were, was there any crossover during your educational experience, right? No, it was more of a personal thing. Like for me, I was always interested in like, oh, there's a health issue. I wonder what else I could do for it. But it, it still was, it was just kind of two different schools of thoughts. And I never even thought about, I, I never thought twice about, you know, I was learning in medical school. That was very interesting to me. And then the anecdotal things were also very interesting to me. So, but talk to us a little bit more about, you know, the, the curriculum at Stony Brook. Um, and, and whether or not you were being trained to treat the whole person, or was it really sort of a, a, a more narrow focus on finding what was causing someone to be sick and either killing it or helping them to overcome it? What was, what was, the, what was the sort of the philosophy of the curriculum that you were studying in medical school? So that's something... Now that I look back at it, I can tell you, I don't know that I thought about it while I was in it, but it was definitely 
um, a much more parochial view. It's narrow view. Reductionist is the word I like to use. You learn very good education. You learn how to identify and diagnose problems and treat them well. Uh, I will say that in terms of treating the whole person, that was always a focus, but I think we thought of it differently. We thought of it in terms of having the knowledge plus having good bedside manner. That was what the idea of treating the whole person was all about. I think that also looking back on things, we had very little training in nutrition, which I think is paramount to um, treating, uh, treating and diagnosing problems today. Uh, so in general, I look fondly back at my education, but I think there's a lot that I learned since my medical school training. So of course, you're now on a Lyme disease podcast and uh, you work at Case Integrative with one of the top um, uh, Lyme literate medical doctors in the country. So, you know, I'm going to ask you the question. Uh, during any of your um, education, whether it be in Fargo, North Dakota, whether it be at the Ivy League University of Pennsylvania, or at one of the top medical schools in New York, uh, Sternenberg University, what did you learn about ticks and tick diseases? So very little. My exposure to tick diseases was really location-based. And since then was um, more when we were doing actual training in the hospital as, you know, we do rotations and then go on as residents and you'll see Lyme disease in people's histories. Um, and that's sort of the exposure that I'd had. All right, so let's dig into that a little bit more because you were, you were trained at Stony Brook University, right? Uh, it, mm -hmm. it is in the heart of the Lyme belt. It is, mm -hmm. it is within a stone's throw of where the Lyme bacteria itself was discovered, right? The, the ticks that were examined by Dr. Bergdorfer, who is credited with discovering the Lyme bacteria, were collected here on Long Island. Mm -hmm. So when you were a student in medical school, give us some details about what you learned about Lyme disease. What did you know coming out of medical school? You know, it... it to be exact would be really hard what I knew then, but from what I remember and recall is when I think of Lyme, you think of certain uh, neurological symptoms that may come along with it or certain palsies, but that's really, I think, the extent of the understanding. And even as I went on to practice, it wasn't something that was always the focus, even though I will see patients with it in their history, but now my understanding of it is totally different. Okay, well, we'll get there in a second. Mm -hmm. So when you were when you were uh, doing your residency, and did you do your residency at Stony Brook or did you just do rotations when you were a medical student? Just when, yeah, just rotations. So when you were doing your rotations as, as a, as a uh, medical student at, uh, at Stony Brook, did, uh, did, you, uh, did you learn how to, how to interact with people who were suffering from Lyme disease or is this just something that was noted in a chart that may have been a part of a larger picture that you were evaluating diagnostically as a student? Definitely just noted in the chart. That was never a specific focus. Okay. Yeah. So um, talk to us about where you then continued your education. You graduated from Stony Brook University. Talk to us about where you did your residency and, and some of, your, some of the, uh, the hospital rotations that you did after that. Sure. So after Stony Brook, I ended up coming back to Chicago and went to Northwestern for an anesthesiology fellowship, uh, sorry, anesthesia residency. 
Um, and then from there, I actually went back to New York and did an interventional pain fellowship that was between three different hospitals. It was between um, Cornell, the Hospital for Special Surgery, and Memorial Sloan Kettering, uh, which was a nice way to do pain because I got to see a little bit of cancer pain, uh, musculoskeletal pain, and then general uh, academic center pain at Cornell. And then I came back to Chicago and started working. So now during the time that you did your residency and the time that you did your fellowship, and your fellowship, of course, was in New York, uh, again, in the, in the heart of the Lyme Belt, um, did you come in contact with anyone who had Lyme disease and did you learn anything about treating Lyme disease during, uh, during your work at any of those three um, you know, top hospitals? Definitely patients with a history of Lyme, but again, never the focus of our treatments. So now when you, when you were learning about patients having a history of Lyme, what did that mean to you and how did you take that into consideration when you were helping them uh, with the pain issues that you were training to, to um, treat people with or help people with during your fellowship? So in general, in the type of fellowship that I was doing, and when we talk about interventional pain fellowship, it is a very reductionist view of pain. So patient comes in, they have a pain complaint, and we really focus on what that pain complaint is. And when you think about someone with Lyme, they're never coming into our clinic with that as their primary complaint. So now let's talk about one other thing that I found really interesting when we were doing our research on you. And, uh, and then Matt, I know has a whole host of questions he's really excited to ask you about. Um, I'd like to talk to you about um, prehabilitation. And that's a topic mm -hmm. that Matt and I have been spending a lot of time developing. Uh, we've been actually been uh, developing this in the context of a detox protocol, but I really like your prehabilitation um, concept. So talk to us about, um, talk to us about um, uh, prehabilitation and why you think, and, and maybe I'm not even using the proper term, so please correct the term if it's not the proper term, and, and what your research has shown on what impact somebody prehabbing will have on the, um, A, on the amount of time they will have to rehab after a procedure, and B, what impact that has on uh, the outcome of the procedure itself. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So prehabilitation is actually a fairly newer concept in the world of anesthesiology. I think up until now, we always concentrate on rehabilitation, you know, how to get better after surgery, you know, what are we doing? Are we going to PT, occupational therapy? Um, how are we going to get better? And for me, I'm really drawn to the concept of prehabilitation because in general, over the years, I've seen so much increasing morbidity that I always wonder to myself, well, what could we have done a, to prevent this, or what can we do to make someone's outcomes better? Because once we're in the operating room, I think it's very hard for people to understand on a microscopic level that all the issues that are going on in a patient, um, how that really affects you when you're under anesthesia. We don't really actually understand all those things. And we don't know if the things that we're doing um, necessarily are in line with the patient's metabolic disorders. And so the more you can optimize yourself before surgery, 
the better hands down you are going to do if everything goes as planned after surgery. And that is really simple things. And when I say simple, they're not simple to enact, but it really, if we could all follow these in general, I think our healthcare system would be less burdened. And that is really lifestyle maneuvers. So how do we optimize our eating and our diet for our current circumstances before we go into surgery? How do we optimize our movement? So whether that's exercising, depending on how deconditioned someone is, how do we strength build? If someone's going in for joint surgery, how can we um, condition those muscles that are getting operated on or increase someone's strength so that afterwards they've already they're not starting at 0%, but they're probably starting at 50%, which is a much better place to rehab from. How do we optimize even mindfulness? Like that in itself is very important. Anxiety levels going into surgery can really influence, believe it or not, the way people do after. And so it's this whole idea of what can we do before, even if there's hormone imbalances, lab values that are off, the total picture. We have lots of patients coming in with undiagnosed sleep apnea. And this is one thing that, you know, probably also really led me to do the work that I'm doing now, but that can be a killer of a disease over the long run. And so having just simple maneuvers or having someone talk to you about the severity of it and catching it before it gets super severe is really important. And those are the things that we're missing. And that also is part of my inspiration for wanting to go and be on the other side and really help people understand what they need to do to just optimize their outcomes in general in life. So it sort of comes together now, East and West comes together, your childhood experiences with your grandparents and particularly your grandmother and the way that she was working with your grandfather. And now your experiences as a Western trained anesthesiologist are now coming together and you're seeing that if we are getting ourselves ready for a procedure and we are using some of the tools, the mindfulness tools, the movement tools, the dietary tools, all of which you observed your grandmother using with your grandfather and your grandfather using himself, put us in a position where we're more likely to have a better outcome. And if we prepare ourselves, for example, if we're on a Lyme disease journey and we're about to go through a course of, of IV antibiotics, for example, or we're going to go through this protocol where we're going to be killing off these germs in our body, if we get ourselves ready for that in the way that you just outlined, we're more likely to be able to tolerate this aggressive treatment and we're more likely to have a, a better outcome if we go through this prehabbing procedure rather than just jumping right in and treating uh, without getting ourselves ready. Absolutely. Like you you hit the, the nail on the head and I think that concept is still very challenging for a lot of people to understand, or we don't actually take a seat back and think about it in medicine. It's just sort of, hey, you have this problem, intervention, intervention, intervention. And some people that are already really sick and that don't take that to heart, they're, we're just almost doing more insult to injury. And that is actually very hard for me to do without sitting and talking about how can we start to make this better. But it does require it requires commitment on both sides. I think it requires commitment um, from the doctor, the physician, and it requires commitment on the person that wants that help. 
So in a blog on case integrative that you had put up, I saw that you had cited some research on this. So can you talk to us about how science is now looking at prehabbing and the role do you think that's going to play not only the future of your practice at case integrative, but, uh, but uh, the future of, of treating people with Lyme disease and other diseases in the medical community generally? So I think this is going to be actually exciting new literature that it's emerging right now. Um, the majority of that literature that has been done or the research that's come out has actually been from Canada. And so that's a concept that we still, I think, are catching on to here. Um, and even when in, in, in anesthesia, we often have pre-anesthesia assessments where we talk to patients before they come in to surgery to let them know what to expect, but we don't actually have the time set aside or the resources set aside where we start seeing them a few months in advance and really optimize their health. That's usually left to their primary care doctor. So that's just an example of how the care is not coordinated right now. And that's not necessarily everywhere, but I've never been in a spot where that care is absolutely coordinated. So I think that is something in the future that will definitely, um, we need to do that in order to optimize our outcomes. And I think especially in a place you know, even starting with a, a surgery center or a hospital that takes care of patients that get joint joint replacements, that's an excellent place to start. Because there you have patients that are often maybe a little overweight or have um, lots of pain and haven't been mobile. So you already have some deconditioning to do. You have some dietary optimization that you can do. You may have some metabolic issues that you can optimize going into surgery. So Dr. A, I just want to focus on now your pivot from everything you've been doing and you talked about with Rich to the point of you now being hired by Casey Integrative Health and you're now the Director of Integrative and Interventional Pain Management for Dr. Casey Kelly. So from our experience, after interviewing over 250 people with Lyme disease, many of them have pain related to tick-borne illness, right? And your, your background in pain management is going to bring a lot to the table for case, case integrative. And you were quoted as saying it's your job to not only relieve the root cause of your patient suffering, but to create longevity in their quality of life. And I can tell you that every Lyme patient wants exactly that. So how are you planning and working with Dr. Kelly and working with people that are suffering from Lyme disease and bringing your approach to helping alleviate pain in those types of patients? Great question. So patients that are coming in with a background of Lyme, I think that um, you have to have an understanding that having a co-infection in the body is also creating an inflammatory response. And so even though you're coming in with maybe some sort of overt joint pain, we actually have to think about how we're going to decrease overall inflammation in the body. And I think that as a traditionally pained, uh, as a traditionally trained pain physician, that's not how we look at things. And that's part of this pivot that I'm doing because I always find myself thinking about, well, what if we could, could create a more anti-inflammatory state in the body than the pain levels would actually automatically decrease. And, and you look at the spectrum, I always say, look at the spectrum of 0% pain relief to 100% pain relief. And our goal is to start moving from zero and slowly work our way up to as close as possible to the 100%, which is always kind of a, a miracle goal. But um, so in that, there's a lot of that. That's where the idea of longevity comes, because we're really looking to how we can create 
good quality of life for people going forward. The other thing that we do a lot of in the pain world is we inject a lot of steroid into people's bodies. Someone with a Lyme background, we really need to be careful or with a co-infection, someone that already has a lot of inflammation, we have to be creative. We have to think of other ways that we can look at pain, treat pain. Um, how do we optimize our diet? There's a lot of things in our daily life that we can do alongside a lot of the more interventional techniques that we jump to. So doctor, I have a couple of follow-ups on that. The first one is steroids, because there is still some conflicting opinions out there by some doctors. And when it comes to steroids, when somebody's suffering from severe pain and inflammation, which generally come hand in hand, many doctors will prescribe steroids. I, in fact, was on steroids for quite a while, several, several months, if not longer. And the damage it did to me because of my Lyme background and my personal experience took me well over a year to recover from the use of those steroids, in my personal opinion. So talk to us about why you believe the use of steroids in Lyme patients is not a good idea if you believe that when treating pain compared to people that don't have a history of tick-borne illness. Yeah, so I think uh, what it comes down to, so in medicine, uh, we're really always focused on, you know, the data and the most evidence-based way to do things. And sometimes we're not always dealing with a very straightforward problem, or we haven't studied steroids on this population of patients that have had Lyme in the past. So we have to use our brain plus creativity to come up with an art to medicine and, and think through it. So if I think about, you know, your background, what's going on with your body, may you tolerate some steroid? Yes. But does that mean that you stay on it for this long extended period of time? And we're not paying attention to what it's doing to your body or say, Hey, maybe you need a steroid holiday or, Hey, let's try If you're willing to, let's try this other technique. I'm just trying to protect you from having a continuous dose of steroid. So it's not that I ever say anything is bad. And I think that's the benefit of having this allopathic training, plus having an integrative training. I can try to take the best of both and, and say, how can we fit this in to your life and lifestyle and help you get better, but also try to prevent future damage from occurring. Gotcha. So, but doctor, I'm curious, do you do steroids suppress the immune system in your, you know, in your opinion, because many of us are trying to battle off these microbes from tick-borne illness. And if we have a suppressed immune system, then these microbes can flourish. And now we have a major setback in our tick-borne illness healing journey when we're being treated with steroids. I guess the first question is, do steroids weaken or inhibit your immune system? And if so, is that something generally as a rule of thumb you think may, may be a last resort for tick-borne illness patients? So in general, they can reduce your immunity. Now it's, it, you can't ever say, yes, they definitely do because it depends on the doses, dosages that you're doing it uh, in, the length of time that you're doing it in, what you're doing it for. So it's always a risk of, it's always a, you always are weighing your risks versus your benefits. That's how a lot of medicine, that's how we have to practice it. So with a tick-borne infection or with someone that's battling an infection, yes, I always like to think twice is what I'm doing, the only thing that I can do, or is there a way for me to do something else that may reduce the risk of um, causing your immunity to go down, but still give you the benefit of whatever we're trying to achieve? So let's talk a little about that integrative approach, right? Because on one hand, we want short-term relief, which is decreasing pain 
And to do that, generally, we have to address inflammation. But I wonder, is there a potential long-term benefit there, right, from your perspective? Because if you're decreasing inflammation through whatever tool we're using, will that allow the body to more precisely and accurately and, and I guess, you know, in a better way, be able to target these pathogens and, and set us up for more optimal health moving forward? So I guess what I'm asking is, will inflammation prevent us from healing at a rate that we could be if we didn't have this inflammation and this systemic pain going on in our bodies? Absolutely. And that's, that's really how I believe. And I think a lot of people that practice in the integrative space really do believe that inflammation is the crux of a lot of the disease and issues that we face. So for example, you know, I just started this week taking the apex term row, actually, Ali Moresco, whom you know, as well, she has taken it in the past and I'm not taking it. And it's been great for me when I have high inflammation days, or if I'm just feeling a little achy, or if I had a long day at work and my neck hurts a little bit. And it's been a wonderful tool. So I think, you know, so you're saying in doing things like that and taking steps that be in being a little proactive, you're actually setting your body up to be healthier, heal and not be as susceptible to illness in general. Is that kind of what you're saying as a, as a holistic approach and a, and a zoomed out approach? Absolutely. So, you know, on that note, you also were quoted as you had some brilliant quotes on, on your blog on case integrative. That's why I keep referencing a lot of stuff that you said there. <laughs> brilliant. But no, That's really very complimentary, <laughs> very powerful. So you said an interventional integrative approach helps you feel better now, but more importantly, it gives you the tools to keep you well for the long term. And that's kind of what we're talking about here, right? So let's talk about some of those tools specifically. You know, steroids may be a last resort. Again, you know, we're not ruling them out completely as we discussed. But what are some other tools? I talked about the apex turmeral, which is basically the curcumin, right, to help decrease inflammation. What are the tools you've used in your experience that can be crossed over to help the tick-borne illness community to decrease inflammation, help with pain, which is your specialty, and also prime the body for healing and recovery from tick-borne illness? Yeah, so at its most uh, basic primitive approach, I think looking at someone's overall lifestyle is really helpful. So we have to start reframing and looking at our diet and food as medicine, right? And that doesn't mean that, you know, everything you put in your mouth has to be so healthy that you never have any pleasures in life. I'm not saying that, but we really need to have this you know, re-education on how to optimize the things that we like, you know, what we can do to add different nutrients to them, like little tricks, you know, is there, is there a place where I can add some flax or chia or um, what am I eating for dinner? Can I add something in that's going to help me lower my blood glucose? So those we're, we're always looking at how do I decrease inflammation the most? And something that we don't think about is over the long run, the more um, elevations or spikes that we have in our blood glucose on a daily basis, the more inflammation that's creating in our body. And that's that literature is definitely emerging. And that is something that will definitely be the target of longevity medicine for sure. So those are things in the diet that we should think about. You know, you're talking about taking the curcumin, excellent source of um, an anti-inflammatory uh, spice that exists and highly regulated and well studied. Um, so aside from that, you know, people can take it in supplement form, but you can also add it to your food. So just understanding, you know, how we can get all the nutrients that we possibly can, because every time we put something in our mouth, that's going into our body, it can either cause inflammation or it can have an anti-inflammatory response. The second thing um, that's really important to talk about is movement. And Movement, I say it like that because it's not necessarily exercise per se, but that's it's under the same category. 
and not all movement is created equally for everyone. And so for me, I really like to get to know a patient and understand what kind of movement A is um, approachable for them because people have different types of pain. They're limited sometimes in what they can do. Um, also what they have access to may limit what they are able to do. Um, they could also, there could be a mindset that, you know, I'm, I'm not able to move. So we have to work through some of those challenges and other people prefer, you know, some people prefer to run. Some people prefer to walk as their exercise. Some people prefer to stretch. So there's got to be some movement though. And that's definitely also a anti-inflammatory, um, exercise is anti-inflammatory building muscle is also anti-inflammatory. I like to say that muscle can be looked at as an anti-inflammatory organ. So we have to talk to patients and see how we can strength train. And that looks different for everyone. Everyone's capacities and abilities are different. Um, along with movement, the other thing I like to talk about is mindfulness because mindfulness, believe it or not, is also a very important part of longevity and creating an anti-inflammatory environment in the body. Not only do uh, physical toxins build up in our body or we have infections, inflammation, all that stuff that's causing plugs and clogs in our body, but we can also have emotional toxins. And that can also affect us at a very cellular level that we don't even think about. And some of those changes that occur, um, very, very micro changes that occur with mindfulness can be very powerful over many years. So those are some of the overarching pillars that I like to start with. And that's what I always call homework for people to, to leave here and, and go and do. And then we also have access to a lot of anti-inflammatory nutraceuticals and herbs. Um, in terms of actual pain, there's a lot of different techniques that we can use for patients. Uh, what I like about case integrative is that we can offer a variety if if someone needs a steroid injection, we can do that, but we can also offer other therapies like prolozone injections into the joints. And prolozone offers us the ability to use natural substances as opposed to steroid. Uh, we also have access to a lot of infusions that can help us detoxify the body and create an anti-inflammatory state. So we have a lot of tools in the toolbox. And I think that is also really helpful to just know that there are options and that gives people a lot of hope that are battling chronic infections. Dr. A, you just threw a ton at us and I would love to unpack all of it with you. I know we don't have enough time, but I do want to explore a couple of them or at least one of them specifically. Yeah, sure. So the, the, emotional detox, the emotional toxins you referred to, right? That's something that I don't think we talk about enough on this podcast. And I think the trauma, uh, the, the trauma we have in our lives and the emotion we carry in our bodies that we suppress really do inhibit healing. And we're seeing that in a lot of patients, but some people aren't as open to that to listen to this podcast. And I wasn't, frankly, up until very recently, open to that idea of the emotional toxins within my body preventing me from healing. So can you just give us a little bit more detail about what you mean by that and how science backs and proves that, because a lot of people think it's very woo-woo, this emotional toxins in my body. So, uh, you know, if you could just talk a little bit deeper about that for us with our, with our listeners. Yeah, so I, you know, despite what I say, I think um, a lot of this ends up being a mindset and different things happen to people in their lives, which bring them actually to be more open to an integrative approach to medicine and realizing that, hey, this isn't just about, you know, this, this, this one thing is inflamed or 
you know, I have this one joint problem. There is more to the story. There's more to the picture. And, you know, like a headache, for instance, we talk about a headache. A headache can come from many different sources, but it, it can often be triggered by an emotional circumstance. And people that have a history of migraines, maybe there is some emotional, there, there are emotional toxins that need to be unpacked, right? So I think it, first of all, comes with a willingness to to identify that, yes, there is maybe something else going on in the body. And I also don't think people realize that un until they start doing the deeper work. Um, and once you start doing that deeper work, and it can be as simple as participating in a five-minute mindfulness daily routine or a breathing routine, and the more you access even just what you're feeling on a daily basis, the more you're able to wrap your head around something that something may be going on or you know, something may be clearing without you even knowing it. But I don't think it's something that I can necessarily convince someone of. I think you just have to participate in those activities um, and see it for yourself. And we always look at this from the, the crystal of what is the cost and what is the risk? And the risk is essentially zero to this, right? And, and the cost is either minimal or none to address these emotional things going on in our body. So if people are listening and they're on the fence about it, give it a try. What do you have to lose at this point if you're suffering from tick-borne illness, I think, right? But, you know, you talked about, Dr. A, two different approaches, one of them being possibly, you know, some breathing exercises and another then some, some sort of do, you know, these, I forget what you call it, like this trauma work or the emotional work. And it could be a five-minute emotional uh, you know, session. So what specifically can our listeners go to Google or YouTube to figure out, well, if I want to try this and I want to do a five minute emotional release, or if I want to do some deep breathing exercises, what are some keywords they can look up to try these on their own to see if it's something that fits them or might jive with them in their healing journey? Sure. So one thing I just want to backtrack because it was important that you said these, these can be done with zero cost, zero risk but the risk of not participating in, in activities that clear your emotional stress can actually lead downstream to multiple different chronic diseases and even cancer. And that has definitely been scientifically proven in the literature. Uh, so how do people access this um, in a, in a cost-free manner? So keywords that um, the one can look up on Google or YouTube is breathing techniques, as simple as breathing techniques. There's multiple different types of breathing techniques and different people, I think, um, take a liking to different techniques. So there's box breathing, there's pranayama techniques. Um, James Nestor has a great website with a lot of free breathing videos if someone's interested in doing that. Uh, in terms of doing a little bit of manual stretching work, you can look up chair yoga, basic back stretches, basic yoga, uh, any sort of, you know, as complicated as you want to get with yoga, there's multiple free videos online. Uh, there's emotional release technique. There's different apps that people can access for what we call limbic rewiring, which also helps us with this concept of uh, doing the deep work and accessing the emotional trauma and just clearing it. And one of the sort of most accessible and easier ones to get through is called NeuroCycle. NeuroCycle? NeuroCycle. Yep. By Dr. Carolyn Leaf. Great. So I, I do have one final question before Rich picks up and I'm sorry for dominating this part of the discussion no, here, but that's okay. One thing I want to circle back with, because we did talk about diet and we did talk about lifestyle changes to 
basically enhance your body and put it in an optimal state to heal, decrease inflammation, and allow the treatment you're doing with case integrative to work and rid your body of these pathogens. But we recently interviewed Bob Miller, who is a tick-borne disease genetic specialist who works with a lot of patients who are, are difficult cases. And we learned that certain foods and supplements actually have the opposite effect than you'd expect. So for example, you come to case integrative and I'm, and I'm really inflamed and I got a lot going on. I need to help detox. Well, let's give you an IV of glutathione. We learned some people have some sort of genetic expressions or genetic mutations or these, you know, genetic SNPs, they call them, which don't allow you to properly break down. I'm sorry. They don't allow you to properly recycle the, the spent glutathione. And as a result, after having a positive result from it in day two or three, you're going to get inflammation because of all these free radicals that are floating around in your body. So how do you address those types of things when generally speaking for the broad, you know, the broad population, this works, but there's a subset of people with these genetic things going on that actually make you feel worse when you do things that traditionally would work for the, 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 the main, mainstream population, if that makes sense. Yeah. And this is where the challenge of medicine comes up in because that, that issue that you're bringing up is actually widespread. We just don't address it. And that's where the idea of precision medicine is going to take hold over the next few years. But we prescribe medications every day, all day in the hospitals. And we actually don't check people um, to see how they metabolize. And that happens even in the pain world. We're prescribing pain medications and people can be rapid metabolizers. They can be slow metabolizers. So we don't know if we're giving them a medication that's, you know, not working for them because they're just metabolizing it too fast. Similarly, we may be overdosing patients because they're metabolizing it very slowly. And that can happen with a variety of medications, a variety of techniques. And and this is why I go back to lifestyle being a really important way to sort of load your genetics and prime them and, um, you know, bypass the environmental toxins that epigenetically change us. So I do think, I, I do hear your concern, and that's something that right now our current medical landscape isn't set up so that we can catch that in everyone. But as we move to more of a precision way of working with patients, we will get to a point where we can make sure, hey, if I'm gonna give you this glutathione infusion, are you going to respond to it? So we have taken up a lot of your time and we would love to interview even longer, but we know we had some time restrictions. Uh, so uh, the first thing I'm going to have to do is get you to commit to coming back onto the podcast in the future so we can explore some of this in more detail. Um, but I, I guess more importantly, uh, my final question is going to be, um, or my, I guess my second to last question is going to be, um, if we were to use the metaphor of a coach, of a doctor being a coach, um, how would you recommend a patient get the best result from, uh, from their doctor and how would they present so that they would be the most coachable so they get, they get the best outcome from the experience of interacting with their doctor? Sure. So I will absolutely come back when you want to talk to me. Um, but that's a great question. And I think uh, that is part of the reason that I wanted to leave a more traditional setting and work with patients who actually were really vested in working on their health. And so I think the best thing for patients and for physicians is, first of all, to be a team. We're, we're working towards a mutual goal. Uh, for patients really to come in with an open mind, same thing goes for a physician to really have an open mind because different people have different styles, different healing techniques, different things that they're willing to try and not willing to try um, and really come in with 
the vulnerability and accountability to to take care of your health. And I say vulnerability because you know I, we want to know what's what's wrong, and we also want to know if something's not working because we want to be able to help you fix it. And the accountability comes in because you know, I I or anyone else that you're talking to only has that limited time with you in person, but actually what you do on a day-to-day basis has a lot more return on your investment than the time that we're actually spending together. And so I think it's important to sort of, you know, show up with all the information and so that we can have a really good discussion and then leave with actionable items or some homework that, you know, you know that you're going to be able to do. So I would like your reaction to something that I heard on a podcast I listened to this week. Shaka Vedantin in his uh, podcast, The Hidden Brain, interviewed an expert on ambivalence. And one of the things that the expert argued was that the best doctors are doctors who are willing to be ambivalent with their patients, to learn with their patients and to figure things out together. But patients don't respond well to doctors who are showing some ambivalence and showing some vulnerability. So how do you sort of strike that balance between uh, you know, the, the medical community essentially having conditioned both its doctors and its patients to have somebody ride it on a white horse and give you a solution, knowing that that's not going to be the best environment for the patient or the doctor, but making sure that the patient is comfortable with you having sort of this team building relationship that we're not conditioned, at least in Western cultures, to um, to expect and to benefit from. Sure. Yeah, that's actually a really good point that you brought up. And I think a lot of it has, it's, it's a style issue too. And a lot of patients that find us at Case, I think like the team effort and a lot of patients that I met are actually really on top of their health. And so that I really appreciate because it, it makes it really fun actually to work together. Some patients that don't want the ambivalence, that's fine. You learn that style and, and then you, you work with that style. And that's part of the art of medicine that I was saying. So it, it doesn't necessarily have to be that, you know, we're working as, we should be working as a team, but some people view the doctor patient relationship as, Hey, you know, even if my doctor has a little bit of ambivalence, I don't, it's not necessarily ambivalence. It's just, Hey, I'm open to working with you. And I'm not saying that you absolutely have to do this, but I'm suggesting that these may be steps or measures that you can take to, to help you make your health better. And so I think just reframing that and people even listening to a podcast like this, where they, they understand that it's not, we're not saying that because we don't know what we're talking about, or I don't need to absolutely say you have to do this, but it's, we're, it's coming from a good place. And it's coming from a place that we want to be able to work together. Because if I tell you to do something, but your heart's not in it, then you're mostly, most likely going to leave here and not be compliant with it. So Dr. Agarwal, we really love this interview. We are absolutely going to chase you down for a future interview. We can focus on some some of these points in more detail. Uh, but uh, for folks who want to learn more about you between now and when we can get you back on the podcast, uh, where can they find more out about you and your blogs and the other information that you're putting out into uh, the community? Sure. So keep posted on uh, the Case Integrative Instagram page because we We'll keep track of all the blogs that are that are coming out. I have an Instagram page uh, at Breath and Body MD. 
Uh, and we also have a website, Case Integrative Health, that people can follow us on. So Dr. D.T. Agarwal, we really enjoy this podcast. You're a wonderful young woman. We uh, are looking forward to learning more about you and the progress that you're going to make at Case Integrative. So thank you for spending some time with the community of Tick Bootcamp. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Dr. D.T. Agarwal. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Agarwal, please visit her Instagram page at breathandbodymd or at the Case Integrative Instagram page. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, Tick Bootcamp is created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past guests on our podcast. We are due to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view our blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us on the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you, as always, for listening.